This is God's word. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, also Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented them to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. The word of God. Our gracious God, as we come into this space, we pray that you join us and and that we may have a sense as we enjoy the silence. <laughs> Let's continue. So as we, as we come into this space and as we listen for your voice, we pray that you would meet us. And we, we know we come from all different places. We talked, mentioned this morning about being wounded, and some of us come wounded. And so then, like, our guard is up even as we walk into a place like this. Some of us come joyful because of how you've met us recently, and some of us come struggling or questioning. And from all these places, um, now we're, we're sort of reflecting, and to some degree we're, we're being open to words coming into our lives that might be transformative. And as we're sitting here, more of a mess than we care to admit, more broken, all of us, more broken than we want others to know, we can, we can rest assured as we listen for your voice because you're the God who moves towards broken and messy lives. And, and the gospel says, although we're more of a mess than we care to admit, that you love us. And so we are more loved and accepted through the gospel than we ever imagined. And that is the truth that we try to apply today. Would you meet us with that grace and that gospel so that our lives might be changed? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. good once in a while to stop and reflect on the mundane and unglamorous things of life. What, what can you think of that is just really an unglamorous thing that is a part of everyday life? Anybody have any? Diapers. Cat litter. Cat litter. I'm sensing a theme. Let's just, let's just not stay there too long. Commute to work. Oh, commute to work, yeah. Yeah. Um, there we go. <laughs> Don't make like you do that regularly. Come on. We're not at the dentist office here. <laughs> just rubbing it in. Um... Yeah, right? Nobody said the DMV, which was something that comes to my mind, having to go down to the DMV. Um, sometimes you maybe you're in a place like that or you're in like a bank or something and you just, you know, you look at the, the white walls and you think of the people working there and you just go, what a job, right? 
what a job, you know. And yet there's so many things in life that are, I think actually when you think about it, most of life, isn't it most of life just unglamorous when it comes down to it? You know, life is not predominantly those YouTube videos that go viral. Those are, those are the outlier moments. Those are really hard to capture and find. That's why they go viral because they're, they're, there's something glamorous or exciting or new or, or amazing about them, surprising about them. Most of life isn't like that. You know, there's, uh, somebody's got to clean the hotel rooms of, of the Olympics, Olympic Village, right, <laughs> in Sochi. So, you know, those are the kind of things you don't think about, but that's, much of life is unglamorous. And, and the truth is much of community, much of Christian community is unglamorous. It's just unglamorous. It's just mundane. There's nothing flashy about it. And yet what we're reading today the story in Acts chapter 6 basically shows us that amidst the most unglamorous, mundane aspects of this new movement of the Christian church, there are these incredible, surprising aspects that just add to the attractiveness of the movement. And you see those. So, you know, it's not just we've seen healings. We've been reading some of the book of Acts. You've seen healings, big sermons that, you know, with... Eloquent words that draw people. And what we're basically reading here is a story that says, now it was growing rapidly, but after some really mundane, just boring things happened and decisions were made, it was growing even more because of how those things happened. There's surprising attractiveness in some of these mundane things. We're going to look at the surprising leadership amidst unglamorous conflict. We're going to look at surprising response to overlooked needs and, su- and surprising empowerment amidst boring administrative decisions. All right. First of all, surprising leadership amidst unglamorous conflict. Conflict in an organism or organization is about the most predictable thing that you can think of. It's going to happen, right? There's going to be conflict. Usually it's not too exciting, even though we'll share it with across the cubicle. And, oh, did you hear about this? You hear about this? You know, somebody wasn't paid attention to by the higher-ups. Somebody wasn't heard, wasn't listened to. An idea wasn't passed on because someone just didn't have to pass it on, and maybe they don't like you, and so they didn't pass it on. Conflict. It, it happens. It's almost like you read this verse, um, you read verse 1, and in some ways... You kind of go like, well, why would I read on? This sounds so mundane. In those days, the number of disciples was increasing. The Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. I mean, it just kind of seems like, well, uh, sure, of course, probably that would happen. And there would be a little bit of tension about that. It's conflict. It's mundane. And you don't expect anything really surprising to come out of that unless, of course, it's in this... Christian community that has the gospel at the center of its life. Well, then you see some really surprising things. You see leaders, as this conflict comes, who amidst the conflict, they listen attentively. They aren't defensive about the issue. The complaints are heard with no passing of the buck, and the leaders actually own it as something that is in their court to do something about. Those are all pretty unusual you know, gut reactions to, to conflict being brought before you. And that's not what we're used to. Um, really, if you think about it, 
what's going on here is that a legitimate mistake and error is being pointed out to how the apostles were leading the church. Some of you have, just because I know some of you, some of you have um, different experiences in different churches, and there's experiences here that people have had in a church, not here, of course, but in other churches, where a leader has let you down. Um, And... You know, and, and it was legitimate. They've, they've hurt your feelings. They didn't pay attention to you. They kind of snubbed you. And it hurt. And it was real. And, you know, that leader was out of line. And maybe it wasn't a leader. Maybe it was just someone else in that church. That's exactly what's happening here. This, a group of people going, we're on the watch of these apostles, these people who were the big apostles, the big 12, you know, we're getting overlooked. And yet the people of their ethnicity, of their ethnic background, are, are getting all the food and we're getting overlooked. It was a legitimate complaint. And what you have here is you have these apostles, these people who spent time with Jesus. And we're now starting a community around this message and gospel of Jesus. You get to see how they react to their mistake being pointed out. And... You know, the surprises continue because what you see is you see something very uncommon is you see rapid change. You see them being nimble in their ability to course correct. I mean, they deal with it immediately. It's the very next sentence we're reading. They just went about changing course. In a sense, not, not surprising if you know their message, if you know the message that was at the center of these apostles. The message had to do with the, the apostles themselves. If they're going to believe the gospel of Jesus, they have to admit that they're imperfect. They have to walk with a daily knowledge that they make mistakes. In the song that we read, one of my favorite, or the song that we sang, one of my favorite hymns, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, the word that really jumps out to me is prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. That, that's what the apostles, that's a good kind of theology and anthropology that the apostles walked every day with. And when you walk with that kind of anthropology where you say, you know, I'm in such need of course corrections. In fact, I'm in so need of course corrections that I need someone to come in. I can't even correct my own course well enough. I need Jesus to come in and take the correct course for me and be my course correction in life. That's what the apostles were walking around with. You wonder why they can change on a dime and say, we'll own this and let's change how we operate because we've messed up. It's because they have the gospel at the center of their life. And so not only do they do that, but then it begins to move into almost fairy tale unbelievability in terms of how they react to this conflict issue because they divest power to give it to minority, ethnic minority leadership. How often does that happen? Willingly saying, let's, let's make sure the leadership is balanced a little more. Let's get seven folks who are from your ethnic background to be kind of just have the power in this to, to do the job that we're failing at. Let's balance this out more appropriately. You know, how rare is that? Think about the United States Senate. I think if my numbers are correctly, you know, the Senate's one of the branches of the legislature. We're not in class in junior high, but, you know, there's the House of Representatives and there's the Senate. And the Senate is only 100 people. There's, if my numbers are right, you can fact check me, but 
96 of the 100 senators are Caucasian or white. And, and, then, and then you look up, you know, this is an article, this is a little piece that came out this last year that I remember. For the first time, this is in June, for the first time America's racial and ethnic minorities now make up about half of the under five age group. It's a historic shift that shows how young people are at the forefront of sweeping changes by race and class. Now imagine the 100, the 96 Caucasian senators getting together behind closed doors and seeing that statistic and saying, we've got to change. And then coming out from that meeting going, we're putting all our names in a hat and 26 of us are, are going to be out and we want to be replaced by ethnic representative leadership so that needs of the right people are heard in this country. You know, that's, that's a fairy tale, right, that that would happen. People don't divest power willingly unless maybe you're in this little, small, unnoticed movement in the first century of people who hung around Jesus. You do it at the drop of a hat. Divest power. Admit your failure. So there's surprising leadership amidst unglamorous conflict. There's also surprising response to overlooked needs. You notice in verse 2, what you see in verse 2 is basically, it says the 12 gathered all the disciples together and then they said what they thought should happen. You basically see as soon as the light is shined on this unmet need of the, the hungry, powerless, ethnically overlooked people and, and gender overlooked people in their group, as soon as the light is shined on this injustice, really, they make a really big deal out of it. They get everyone together. It says all the disciples. I don't know if there's a little bit of hyperbole in that or not. They gathered all the disciples together. Because apparently, if you've been reading up to this point, that's thousands of people. So I don't, But they gathered all the disciples together. The point is they made a really big deal out of it and said, we need to course correct, we need to change Let's fix this situation. All because some of the people in their group who didn't really have a voice and who were the easiest to overlook um, were experiencing a need. And not only do they bring everyone together, but they actually change the leadership structure so that those unglamorous needs are met, those overlooked needs. And that's just surprising. It's surprising to react like that so quickly to those who who were so easily overlooked. But again, that's what might happen if you're in this group of people that knew Jesus and has the gospel at the center of your life. And it's not just then, but throughout history. There's a book that actually highlights a lot of these kind of little blips of unusual, surprising behavior in the unglamorous Christian community. Christine Pohl writes this book called... um, um, I don't have the title in front of me. I'm forgetting the name of it. But it's about Christian hospitality. And this is a, let me, this is a quote, or basically what, a description of someone named Fabiola by one of the church leaders in the 4th century named Jerome. Fabiola was a Roman matron who lived in the 4th century with enormous wealth who had spent time in Bethlehem with Jerome. Um, Jerome writes that she had broken up and sold all that she could lay her hands on of her property. It was a large one and suitable to her rank. And when she had turned it into money, she disposed of everything for the benefit of the poor. 
First, first of all, she founded an infirmary and gathered into it sufferers from the streets, giving their poor bodies, worn with sickness and hunger, all the nurses care. Need I describe here the diverse troubles from which human beings suffer, the maimed noses, the lost eye, the scorched feet, the leprous arms? How often did she carry on her own shoulders poor, filthy wretches tortured by epilepsy? How often did she wash away the purulent matter from wounds which others could not even endure to look upon? He says, basically, Fabiola founded the first hospital in the West in Rome. And not only that, um, but she started a hostel for pilgrims and strangers in Ostia. Jerome writes, not only did they relieve the wants of the destitute, their generosity was at everyone's service and provided even for those who possessed something themselves. The whole world heard that a home for strangers had been founded in the port of Rome. Fourth century, a Christian woman discovers the gospel and begins acting the way Christians in their own unglamorous way act. Dramatic responses to the most overlooked people around us. And then third, surprising empowerment amidst boring administrative decision decisions. When I was a, I lived for a summer in McAllen, Texas, and I worked as a server at Chili's Grill and Bar in I might have mentioned that before. I was terrible at it because I'm not, I'm not very good at multitasking or as they call it, they called it their consolidating. You know, you got to remember the ketchup but also get the new meal for that person and the water that that person had. I was terrible at that. I remember though that um, something that seemed even worse to me was the manager's job because the manager, and I had no idea, you know, how a restaurant worked or anything. I just, over time was watching, you know, we had to, I knew what I had to do. I had to gather up all my receipts and my money and then give it to the manager but what happened was at the end of the night, that manager was in the back in this office doing this tedious work of collecting all the receipts and squaring up all the numbers. In fact, one time I got called in because something didn't seem to square, and, and the manager thought maybe I had you know, changed something to try to get more money in my pocket. And I think, I think about that. I think, what a tedious, boring administrative task that the, you know, the manager, the person in charge of all of us, has to do every single shift. And that, quite frankly, that's just a part of life, right? That's a part of anything. Especially, you know, leaders have to do this. And in the church, you know, that nothing, you read the story and you think nothing could almost be more boring than the idea of a church meeting. <laughs> Basically what we're hearing about here. Not just, you know, the, the time when the church gets together and there's music and there's maybe, hopefully an inspiring message, hopefully. Um, hopefully you feel that way today when you walk away. But... But, you know, the meeting after the service that the people who are really bought into it stay for, and it's like an hour and a half long, and it's this tedious church business, and it's numbers, and it's charts, and it's budgets. I mean, that's kind of what we have. We have a church meeting. You have a sneak peek into the administrative and management of the church. And what you, what you would expect to see is some evidence of those normal kinds of things we get in management and in the world is micromanagement, people acting territorial as they uh, and, and threatened people dealing with appointing other people to roles on the basis of you know a pecking order or favors having been done or tenure these are the kinds of ways management decisions are made and what you see is surprising 
Because you see in verse 3 and verse 6, it's very clear. They're saying, I mean, on the one hand, they are making a decision. There is authority to this. People are listening to it and in, in taking on what they say and going about it. But the authority comes out in this decision that is one that releases. It's releasing authority. Brothers and sisters, you choose seven men. Go, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. And we'll turn this responsibility over to them. It's, it's not even that you have to run those choices by us for us to give the stamp of approval. Sure, we'll lay hands on them and we'll bless them when you've got your seven, but it just totally, they, they make a decision, they have authority, but it's, a, it's like in the very act of authority, they're releasing and they're empowering new participation in the midst of their authoritative decision. They're, they're letting more people, new people, into the power structure, and we get their names listed in here. I mean, it just gives this nitty, it's almost like we're reading the minutes of this meeting, right? This boring administrative, but the names are all names from a Hellenistic background. I mean, there's, there's this little bit of amazing intrigue into it. And you can imagine this has, it's actually, I mean, it's boring, it's mundane, it's just an administrative decision, but it has a huge effect. We read at the end of this, This last statement, I think, is very intentionally placed at the end of this story. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. We have a description of how leaders behave in this new movement. And what do they do? But the way that they do that ends up drawing a whole bunch of leaders from the competitive movement, to to put it bluntly, the priests within the Jewish power structure of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Essenes and the Zealots of the day, they had everything to lose with this Christian movement, which was still seen as a Jewish sect. They had everything to lose. They were, it was very threatening to have this group gaining all this interest and visibility because they, you know, they had a few different practices that were, that were odd and, and bringing visibility to these Christians and their countercultural behavior made everyone in this broader Jewish circle look bad. It was a threatening situation. And what happens, though, is that all these leaders from the other movement see the permission giving, the as authority is exercised by giving away power so that more can be included. Oh, that's not what they were used to in their, in their circles of power as priests. And a large number of them come over. Do you see how even in the mundane things of the Christian movement, of the Christian community, the, the gospel, I'll, just, I'll call it that, the gospel just exudes this energy and this attractiveness that becomes part of what is shared, even in the most boring, mundane moments. How does that happen? I mean, where do these surprising traits come from in a community? How do you get there? How do you get to look like a community like this, where leaders... As we talked about in our first point, leaders are existing who are divesting their power. They give away their own power as a way of solving the trouble and the conflicts of the world around them. Who does that? A group of people does that who have had their power or their trouble and their problems dealt with by meeting Jesus who gave up his power to solve their trouble. People who remember Jesus saying, we're heading up to Jerusalem now and I'm going to be turned over to the priests and they're going to beat and mock me and put me on a cross 
I'm going to die as we go up to Jerusalem. He knew it was coming. He was giving away his power to solve the trouble of the apostles and all those that they would end up telling the story to. Who, who ends up doing this? Where does the surprising traits come from in a community? A community that stops everything to reshape its leadership structure in order to better serve the needs of the most powerless members. Well, a group does this who've seen Jesus at work. Jesus, who over and over in his ministry, as they walked along those dusty roads with him, he would stop what he was doing, stop everything, and turn his back on all the importance and all the crowds to just deal with one overlooked person. To deal with the, as, as they talked about then, it was like the mantra of what Jesus did. He hung out with tax collectors and sinners. It was the mantra of people's puzzlement over how Jesus operated. A group of people who saw him stop regularly and talk and heal, the woman caught in adultery, the man born blind, people with leprosy, epilepsy, the woman with incurable bleeding, the Samaritan woman at the well, over and over they saw him do this. And not just that, more importantly, we're talking about a group of people who have come to see themselves as powerless spiritually and hungry and ailing spiritually and have come to see that Jesus has himself stopped the bleeding, stopped everything to feed them, to heal them. And he, he's not waiting for you to clean yourself up and to heal yourself and to become acceptable. But as the Bible puts it, he, was, he became unclean and rejected in your place so that you might become heirs and co-heirs with Christ. That's the kind of people that do these surprising actions. Where do these surprising traits come from in a community? A community whose administrative functions become riddled with examples of releasing of authority, the empowerment of new participants, authority marked by permission giving and trust, a culture of trust and permission giving. It comes from a group of people who, who were sent out by Jesus in, in groups of two before they were sufficiently trained and told, go do the things that I'm doing. Go on. A group of people, more importantly, who later saw Jesus lay down his life to usher in new participants into the leadership structure, and whose ethos was not guarded and suspicious, but he rather said of those who were crucifying him, even, what did he say? Father, forgive them, for they don't even know what they're doing. And said to a criminal, feet away from him on a cross, today you will be with me in paradise, ushering in new participation. So maybe you're catching the pattern of what I'm saying. Where does this all come from? What am I trying to get at? As someone shared in our, we started an eight-week pod um, at our place last night, and someone said, I, first, I was first intrigued by Christianity when I met Christians, and they were different. They acted different. And you have the opportunity here and now, in this world, today, in your life, it's not just 2,000 years ago, to embody the same kind of surprises that we read in the story that will intrigue and surprise the world around us. And it doesn't come from religious effort. It doesn't come from pressure. It doesn't come from knowing some secret spiritual code or some list. That's not what this story is about. It comes from encountering Jesus, divesting his power on your behalf. It comes from seeing Jesus that he stopped all to make you an heir 
to make you qualified to share in God's inheritance, as it says in Colossians. It comes from hearing Jesus speaking words of forgiveness repetitively into your life day in and day out and sending you back out as someone commissioned to share his grace. Let us pray. Our God of grace, may we meet you and may, we, may you open up our hearts sufficiently to know you in a way we haven't yet. I think for many here, there's a desire to be a part of something as lively and exciting as these passages we've been reading in the book of Acts seem. And we open ourselves up to your work, that even the most unglamorous, mundane aspects of our daily life this week would be infused with the kind of grace that we meet when we encounter you. Will your Holy Spirit please make that come alive in our life? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.